All right, so everybody got a hand out. Yeah. Am I too loud? No. I feel a little strong. <laughs> uh, yeah, just just a little. Yeah, I think if it's gonna bother me, I should probably go ahead and just 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 a hair. Pack says it is, so we're gonna go with that. It's one of those things that will like cause me to lose focus. And then it's even weirder when I'm talking through the front and I'm actually in the back. Cheat, my first question, like usual, trivia question, is what book are we studying? Oh, very good. That was, that was exciting. All the answers were that robust. I, I talk all night. It gets me more pumped when you, when you answer that way. So, Galatians, we are, what, this third, fourth week in? So we finally made it to chapter two. And uh, we will actually, after tonight, unfortunately, slow down quite considerably. Our pace will get smaller. The number of verses we cover at once will undoubtedly shrink. In fact, tonight might be the largest single section that we do, 10 whole verses at a time, um, because you'll see that it's uh, it's more narrative. So we're really not covering that much. It's just that he, he says a lot about this one particular thing. So we're going to walk through. So let's uh, dive in first to the review, because we need to be on the same page when we read Galatians. Unlike some other books, Galatians is heavy context-oriented. We do need to know what's going on in the background of this church, or really churches, plural, for us to understand what's going on in the letter. Unlike Ephesians, which is almost a completely irrelevant to its context, uh, Galatians, it really, really matters. And so we need to make sure we dive in. So tonight, we'll be a little bit more historical driven than theological driven. But then from that point forward, we're going to get heavier and heavier theologically. So tonight, feel like this is our break from the doctrine of soteriology. It's still going to come up. It's a major theme of the whole letter. But we're going to talk about the history of Paul and some of the things going on in his life. And it is a doctrinal controversy, so we can't get away from doctrine no matter how hard we try. It's going to be part of every one of these lessons in Galatians. But it'll be a little bit more historical tonight, and so I hope that's useful to you as we think about the flow of the New Testament, particularly with the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. So you should already know, Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul to combat the negative influence of who? Judaizers. All right, let's see. We came up with a really fun expression for what that meant last week. Um, and we said, Jew need to be one. I just thought that was very clever. Jew need to be one. So what are these guys trying to get everyone to become? Jews. But they mean it in a very precise way. But when they say become a Jew, they're talking to Gentiles, and they mean become a Jew in what way? Follow the law. Follow the law, which is going to entail things like circumcision, no bacon, no pork, really no meat sacrificed to an idol at all, um, and, and a lot of other cultural things. The way they observe the Sabbath, even the way you trim your beard is impacted by your adherence to the law, the kind of fabric you're allowed to wear. There's all sorts of things that would come with that. Of course, the big ones would be Sabbath, pork, and um, circumcision. Circumcision being the, the highest of all of those. So the Judaizers are essentially saying to be an actual Christian, to, to be the real deal, you got to go step beyond believing in Jesus. And you have to do these works of the law. If you don't do those works of the law, you're not the real deal. So what's the chief error in their theology? Adding all of those are correct answers. Works, adding to Christ, and, and all of these things we are manipulating 
the very basic elements of the gospel. And so we, I think this was last week, maybe two weeks ago, we said the gospel does not change. It changes you. It changes you. This is a very fundamental piece. So we have a tendency, and we're not Judaizers. I've never been to a church where they were trying to get everybody circumcised, or even trying to get everybody to quit eating pork. Those churches exist, by the way. I just haven't been to one. I've had this conversation, in fact, quite recently with, with uh, a sect of so-called Christianity. But for the most part, that's not our problem. We have a tendency to draw these lines in other ways. In anything, and we draw the line that says, well, a real Christian not only believes in Jesus, but also we've just stepped into the same category. And we've altered the gospel. And Paul would say when you alter the gospel, it's not really the gospel. So you get no opportunity, no chance here to change it. And then Paul spent a lot of time in chapter 1 emphasizing that Paul's gospel came from direct, remember our keyword, revelation. And again, what did revelation mean? He's having a good time. He's got a spaceship going over here. What's revelation mean? To reveal. To reveal. So this is, when we talk about revelation, we're talking about the specific and direct way that God speaks to us. So we would say revelation is where today? It's God's word. This, this is God's revelation to us. And Paul's emphasizing that that's where he got it from. So let's dive in. Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 1, and that's as far as we're going to make it for a little while. Galatians chapter 2. Picking up in verse 1. So he says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Lots going on here historically. So let's, uh, can we break the map out again? Anybody like the map? I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to call that a win. <laughs> okay, let's see what we can do. So I'm going to try to add... It's going to be very coarse. Does that even remotely look familiar? Oh, that's terrible. Wow. All right, we're going a little more European on our map this time than we usually do with this map. And there's a reason for that. Okay. Ooh, sorry. And then, ooh, ooh. Oh, very good. That's Greece. All right, so let's see if we're all on the same page. So what is this? Mediterranean. So you can see it's a body of water. All right, what is this? Can you see that? Egypt. All right, that Egypt is down there. I was trying to point to the Red Sea. And then what would these three bodies of water be? I heard them all. So the little one is the Sea of Galilee. And this is not the proportion, because the Sea of Galilee is tiny. And then the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea. So what nation is this? Israel. Israel. Very good. So Egypt, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, Asia is often what this is called in the Bible. And then this is, this is the great land of Helen, which is the Greek word for Greece. Greece. Yes, exactly. All right, so here's our scenario. The Apostle Paul... Before he's called the Apostle Paul, what nationality is he? Turkish. 
Well, okay, all right. I appreciate that I didn't get a direct answer there. What ethnicity is he? He's Hebrew. He's Jewish. His people are from here. But that's not where he's from, so to speak. Where'd he grow up? In Turkey. This is not exact, but somewhere in that range. Um, Tarsus. Yes. So he grew up there, which makes him a very interesting type of Jew, because he's going to become fluent now in not just Hebrew, but what other language is a really big deal in the New Testament? Greek. Greek. All right. We fast forward a few years in the apostle's life before he's the apostle. Um, he comes down to Jerusalem. The sect is broken out, and uh, they're teaching this different version of Judaism, and Paul hates it, and they're not called Christians yet. What are they called at this point? The way, very good. And uh, what's Paul's response to them? Let's kill them. Let's round them up. So he gets papers, eventually, to head up to where? Damascus. Damascus. We're going to put that about there. Capital of Syria. This is not the scale in any way. Don't look at a map and try to check me. It's north <laughs> of Israel. All right, so he's on his way to Damascus. And, of course, we know this part of the story. What happens to him on the road to Damascus? He literally meets Jesus. So he eventually goes to Damascus, meets Ananias, gets baptized, he's saved, the scales fall off. And then we read last week in chapter 1, what's he do after that? All right, he goes down into Arabia. How far down? No clue where he goes for this, but he goes to Arabia and back. He's hanging out in Damascus, and then... We pick up with this verse. Oh, no, 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 after that. So after he spends, let's pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 1. So he went back to Damascus. And after three years, he went up to Jerusalem. So which way is up? Down. Down. His elevation is up. So from his vantage point, he would go up. Which proves that this narrative is not written by a Westerner. It's written by someone who knew the geography of the context. So from Damascus to Jerusalem was up. He goes there, and who's he meet up with? Barnabas. So Barnabas is not part of the narrative yet. He's already met Barnabas, actually. He met Barnabas while he was in Damascus. He goes to see, we call him Cephas in this text, but yes, that is Peter. And he says, none of the other apostles except James. Okay, only one other, seems like I would say that in English. But he just meets them. And why is he emphasizing that? Do you remember? Because he wasn't going there to get the gospel from them. He just went down, met a few folks, and went back. So he did not get the gospel from them at all. So he was still unknown to the churches of Jerusalem. So if you look in that next section, I'm giving you, giving you a timeline. So Paul is converted and goes to Arabia for Revelation. This is AD 34-ish when it begins. Ish belongs on every date from this period of history. No matter how certain your study Bible may sound, every date from this period has got an ish on it. Because do you know what year it was when Paul got saved in Paul's world? They didn't, they didn't use AD. You know, they didn't use that time scale. I think when Paul got saved, who would have been governor? I mean, uh, emperor. Was that Tiberius or is it after Tiberius? Yeah. After Tiberius? 
Well, yeah, okay, right. Either was or wasn't, for sure. For sure. It wasn't Titus yet, or Domitian, or, or Nero. Nero's not it either. But it's, we're getting close to those guys. So, Ish, he gets saved around 34-ish AD. Anybody know the Ish date for the crucifixion? 33, actually. Between 30 to 33. 33 is probably more widely argued for. So there's some historical reasons for that. So that puts Paul getting saved remarkably close to the actual start date of the Christian church. So we know from this passage that he gets saved. He spends three years in Arabia. So this first visit to Jerusalem has to be around 37-ish. AD, the one he references at the end of chapter 1. You follow me so far? It's around 37 AD. He goes and visits Jerusalem. Then we pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. So then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. So here's our timing conundrum. The only way this can work is if the 14 years includes the three because otherwise we get our time scale completely off with with the events that happen in the rest of chapter two so it's really the only logical way to interpret the passage in any sort of historical sense is that 13 or no sorry the three years is part of the 14 which puts us then around what year ish going to jerusalem the second time Forty-eight-ish. Forty-eight again. Ish. And remember, fourteen years. Just like how long was Jesus in the grave? Three days. Three, was he three days? We say three days. Yeah, three more like two. So, more like one. So it's the end of Friday. So like what an hour on Friday? How much is Saturday? All of it. How much is Sunday? Hardly any. So it's like he's technically in the grave for like 25 hours. We call that three days. So when we say 14 years for Paul here, we probably mean as the calendar flies, not as the literal days fly. So it's probably closer to 13 years, but it rounded up to the next year. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's just probably what's happening. So instead of 48, it's probably 47 is what I'm getting at. Which is why you have to interpret the three years as being part of that for this to make sense at all. So now he begins the second trip to Jerusalem. So he says he went with Barnabas and he took Titus. Do you know anything about Titus? You ever heard his name before? He's got a book, right? Did he write that book? No, no. He's the recipient of that book. Who wrote that book? Paul did. So Paul and Titus are very close. And if you were here for our 2 Corinthians study, remember Titus has a very big role in that narrative leading up to it because Titus is the one that went with the letter and then Paul like, can't focus on ministry because he wants to have Titus come back to find out how it went. And he's waiting to see Titus. And when he finally sees Titus, it's like, oh, praise the Lord. Then he writes 2 Corinthians to them, the kind of happy letter before he shows up to talk to them. So Titus ends up playing a very large role and Paul's ministry. So over those 14 years, a lot's happened, and now we have Barnabas and Titus with Paul. And then in verse 2 it says, I went up because of a revelation. 
I went up because of a revelation. Now, there's different beliefs about what that means. I'm going to argue for what I think it means instead of going through all the other options. I just think one makes a lot more sense than all of the others. So we're going to go with that. Grab your Bible and go back to the book of Acts. Book of Acts. What is the book of Acts about? It's actually the apostles. So we're just flipping through kind of high-level narrative. Chapter 9 is famous. If you know the book well, you, you know that that chapter contains the narrative of Saul on his way to Damascus and meeting Jesus. So that happens in Acts chapter 9. Then Acts chapter 10, theologically speaking, is a very significant chapter in the narrative of Acts because the first Gentile gets saved. And who is that? It's Cornelius. He's a really, really, really big deal. Do you remember the narrative of how that happens? We've discussed it many times. So Peter... Peter receives this vision three different times. A blanket comes down with unclean animals, opens up and says, rise, Peter, kill, eat. And Peter says no every time. And then three Gentiles show up. The vision was supposed to tell him, go with the Gentiles. He doesn't get it. The Holy Spirit has to intervene. He ends up going to Cornelius' house. Cornelius had received a vision from an angel that he would talk to this guy, Peter. And when he heard that message, he and his whole household would be saved. So he, he obeys, has Peter come. Peter shows up, a little bit of dialogue. Peter didn't know I was there, but once he realized he's there to share the gospel, then he shares the gospel. And what happens to Cornelius and his family? The Holy Spirit descends on them, just like it did on the day of Pentecost. It's a big deal. So that there was no question for Peter that that salvation was the same one he received. Then Peter goes home and he has to tell everybody in Jerusalem what happened. Can you imagine what that conversation was like? Yeah. It didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. Um, in fact, we'll cover that in a minute. We'll, we'll come back to that story just a moment. So that happens. Gentiles start getting saved. And then right after that, there's a strong church up here in Antioch. And this church starts seeing a lot of Gentiles, Greeks, non-Jews, Coming to faith in the Lord. I mean, a lot of people are getting saved. So much so that the church in Jerusalem thought, we better send some people up there, find out what's going on. In other words, what do you think they're really doing? <laughs> we need to make sure this is legit. So they send, anybody know who they sent? Barnabas. Barnabas. Barnabas gets sent. Barnabas goes up to um, Antioch. And he gets there, discovers that the work is going incredibly well. He's excited. He blesses the Lord. He's glorifying God because of this. And he has an idea and realizes, I know the perfect man to lead this mission. Of course, who is that? Paul. It's Paul. Interestingly enough, he goes to Tarsus. Tarsus, that's Jonah. Tarsus to go get Paul. So somewhere in this narrative, Paul ends up in Tarsus. Yeah, Tars, Tars, Tarsus. 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 That's really confusing me tonight. I don't know why. And he brings him back, and they lead this mission here to Antioch, and it's going incredibly well. Then, watch this. This is Acts chapter 11, verse 27. It says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Again, from Jerusalem down to Antioch. 
They come down to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold that by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. There we go. Now we have a timestamp. I think it was Claudius. I think he's been Claudius. Yeah, I think it actually was Claudius. No, I don't know. Doesn't matter. So Claudius is emperor now. This happens in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determine, this is in Antioch, they say, you know what, we got to do something about this famine. Of course, where is this, where is this famine going to be? It says all over the whole world. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Who are the brothers in Judea? That's the Jerusalem church. So the whole world's going to have a famine. Their response is, we need to do what? We need to help. Well, not the whole world. Let's help our brothers in Jerusalem. Well, why would they need help? Because all persecution of the church at this point is coming from the hands of the Jews. Rome doesn't care yet. So only Jews are persecuting Christians. And that predominantly means the persecution is going to happen where? In Jerusalem. So who's going to be in most need of aid if there's a great famine? This church is. So this church, very mission-minded, says we need to send some relief down there. So they send it by the hands of none other than what two famous guys? Barnabas and, at this point still anyway, Saul. So Barnabas and Saul march down here to take the offering. This is his second visit. What he say in Galatians? We went down because of a what? A revelation. Well, why are they going down in Acts in this story? Because a prophet received a revelation that a famine was coming. So they went down for this reason. Paul has an ulterior motive. We're going to find out. But this is, I believe, why he went down. And this is why I believe that the narrative in Acts is what he's talking about here in Galatians chapter 2. You with me so far? If you have a study Bible, you can probably see there's like 40 other opinions about this. I think that one makes the most sense. If you want to look at the other options, grab a study Bible and have fun. Um, we don't know for sure, but I think that one makes sense. All right. says, by the way, Claudius mm -hmm. was from AD 41 to 54. Who was before him? So Paul was saved before Claudius. I, I don't remember. I don't know the emperors. Okay, so where are we at? Let's fill in some blanks. We've actually done this a little bit already. All right, so the revelation is a reference to the prophecy of a great famine. The revelation is a reference to the prophecy of a great famine. So if you notice so far in the, car, in the timeline, then, we've only made it to the second Jerusalem visit. <coughs> With me, that's where we're at. The second Jerusalem visit. So let's talk about that second Jerusalem visit. So that's what's happening in Galatians chapter 2. So Galatians chapter 2 is happening between Acts 11 and Acts 15. That's important to note later. We're going to get a little historically nerdy in a minute, and I apologize because <coughs> it's complicated because Paul goes to Jerusalem several times, and it can get a little bit muddy in your head about which one is which. But it's important to see what happens there. So at least you have a basic idea. He's in Jerusalem. I went up because of a revelation. But while he was there, this is Galatians 2.2. 2. 
He set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or have not run in vain. So Paul comes down the second trip now to Jerusalem, and he privately has a meeting before those who seemed influential. Now that's his reference to who? Not Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin would be the Jewish authority. So the other apostles, exactly. So this would be Peter, or Cephas, and James, and John. This is that group. Place. <laughs> Beating himself a little bit. I don't know. If that, that's on Andy's side. I only say that because she's not here. Is this being recorded? <laughs> okay. I'll also play. Where are we at? Verse, uh, all right, can we fill that in? So Paul privately offered his gospel for analysis to the apostles. What's his motivation here? What's he trying to accomplish? For them to verify the repentance of Christ. Yeah, verify. So in other words, to check up, make sure what he's been preaching now for quite some time is the same as what the original 12 11 are preaching down in Jerusalem. We're going to verify that they're the same message. But before he completely answers that question, he's going to give us some other evidence. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So what do we know about Titus? He's Greek. And by saying he's Greek means he's not Jewish and not circumcised. He grew up eating the bacon. Still eats the bacon. Is not circumcised. He comes down to Jerusalem, hangs out with Peter, James, and John, presumably, and they do not ask Titus to be circumcised. That's kind of an argument from silence, but that's what Paul's making here. It's an argument from silence. Hey, they didn't make Titus do it. So by saying that, what's Paul already arguing. He's not really going to get to that point until the end of the chapter. But what's he saying already by setting that up? Judaizers are wrong. wrong. You don't have to be circumcised. Period. Never part of the equation from the beginning to now. That was never part of the equation. You do not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And, and this is also him. It's not me saying it. It's those guys. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so he's kind of branching out. It's not my opinion. All of us apostles are saying this. Uniform message. We all got it from the same Jesus. Turns out Jesus gave us all the same message. And it does not involve circumcision. We do not have to get circumcised. In other words, we don't have to adopt the law in order to be saved. Verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Now what are they trying to find out? Spying out their freedom. That's kind of an awkward thing to work out. I don't know how they do this, but that's what they're there to do. Spy out whether or not they're circumcised. I, mean, I guess you could just ask, but I don't know what Paul was getting at. I don't know if there were some awkward scenario we don't know about. But uh, there's <laughs> but not a Jew. A Jew would have done that. It was it was unlawful to expose yourself. Even, even going up the steps, you had to dress in a way that you couldn't be 
It could have been. So it's interesting. It, it's just an interesting conundrum. Like these guys are spying out the freedom. But uh, isn't that kind of how Phariseeism works even today, though? What are we looking for? I say we. I mean, we we have a tendency to be Pharisees in the modern church, and we like we start judging people. We're trying to find the specific ways that they're not measuring up. That's well, what these guys are doing. Up to read their emails and find out what they were talking about. Good point. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, now we would just check your Facebook account. Yeah. We look at your Facebook and we know. We know already. Um, but that's what's happening here. So that shows us, though, that this controversy over the circumcision thing was not new to the church at Galatia. This controversy started where? Jerusalem. This controversy is at the heart of Christianity. So even here, the second visit, before everything blows up and the Gentile church is even larger than the Jewish church, this is already a controversy. So they're spying out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So if Paul had yielded to that for a moment, what would that do overall? Destroy his uh... it bring the whole conversation into suspicion. Right? We, well, circumcision used to be part of it, and then we took it out? What happened there? No, Paul's saying, no, there was, there was never a moment where this was really up for discussion. It was always grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Circumcision never Save the soul. So not even for one moment did we give in to that. So I think we've done, we should have done the next plane. In Jerusalem, there was already a controversy surrounding the law and the Gentiles after the conversion of Cornelius. So I referenced it, but if you actually want to see it written in Acts, when Paul, when Peter comes back, Acts chapter 11, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. And then we get half a chapter of Peter having to fight the circumcision party before Paul is part of the narrative. So Paul hadn't showed up back in Damascus yet to do ministry. And Peter's already getting in trouble for uncircumcised people getting saved. So this is not Paul's controversy. This is an early church controversy. And who's the first champion of truth? It's Peter. This Paul didn't come in and say, you know, some people even today say, Paul changed the gospel. There's no evidence of that at all. In fact, it's very clear that the early church embraced this very early on and very clearly. So this early controversy started with Cornelius. Then Paul, when he got there, he opposed the circumcision party while he was in Jerusalem. And then let's keep going back in Galatians chapter 2. Let's uh, go a few more verses. Where did we leave off? Was it verse uh, 6? And from those who seem to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. And when they say added nothing to Paul, we mean added nothing to what? His gospel message. In other words, if they added nothing to him, then his gospel message was what? All those are correct. It was complete. Had everything it needed. There was no missing component. The grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, it was completely sufficient. Paul had no negative mark 
from these guys. He's got everything. They added nothing. Verse, uh, what are we at, 7? On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go only to the Gentiles, sorry, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the final verdict in Jerusalem was what? Praise the Lord, keep going. That was the verdict. Good job. This is great. Wow. The same God working in us is working in you. We're going to keep working here with the Jews. You keep working with the Gentiles. Glory be to God. There was a uniform agreement on the gospel at all points in the leadership of the church during this apostolic period. No question. So in the end, the apostles added nothing to Paul's gospel, foreshadowing the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council. Now, do you know what the Jerusalem Council is? So this question is formally answered by the church in Acts chapter 15, meaning that without any question, the book of Galatians had to be written before that. Because if the book of Galatians was written after Acts 15, this letter would go very differently. Oh, guys, a year ago, we decided formally at the church. We gathered everybody together, had a big church meeting. The formal edict is this. I haven't written it down. You can read it if you want to. You don't have to be circumcised. But he, doesn't, he can't say that here because that's going to happen like a month from now when Paul's writing. This is the active controversy that's happening that causes him to write this book. So, um, no, we can't go to that. That's next, next week's. I love that part. We're here. That's, that's right. The, the, we always do 10 verses, so we're going to stop there. Look at verse 10, though. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So follow through that. What, what did he ask him to do? What he wanted to do. <laughs> he asked him to be good Christians, not good Jews. Big difference between those two things. So let's talk about the two cultures one gospel. So Peter preached to the Jews. Paul preached to the Gentiles. Just not, it's not that either one of them only preached to Jews or only preached to Gentiles. The first Gentile convert was preached to by who? Peter. Peter. All right. And Paul, everywhere he goes, where did he start his public evangelism ministry? At a Jewish synagogue. So it's not that they were exclusive. It's just that predominantly they became figureheads, so to speak, the minister, one to the um, Jews, one to the Gentiles. The message was the same in both contexts. That's very significant. You didn't have two different Gospels. You had one. They were the same. Jesus saves by his death and resurrection all those who believe in his name. No, no change in the Gospel. So there wasn't, it's very significant for us. Theologically, this works out in some very profound ways and in other parts of theology. The Jews were saved by exactly the same gospel that the Gentiles were saved by. There's not a Jewish version of it versus a Gentile version of it. There's just one gospel period 
that's saved. So Jews and Gentiles are saved by the same gospel in the same manner. Consequently, this is true across all cultures, or this is true of all cultures across the globe. So think about the implications for today. We alter the gospel message to reach new people groups. <laughs> okay, valid. Valid clarification. Should we alter the gospel? Because we do. We do. Not only do we alter it, we have a tendency to do a more subtle thing. We just add to it. In fact, for a long time, missions from this country, it wasn't just preach the gospel. And as much as I love capitalism, and I do, capitalism's not the gospel. And, I mean, a socialistic country can still be a Christian nation. And there's a part of me that just cringes at that, because I'm like, socialism. <laughs> you know, I don't like socialism. But, I mean, think about how many Christian nations came before us that were not capitalistic. All of them? Yeah. yeah, all of them. Every single one. Like, so there's things we have a tendency to, to bring into it. Not only do we bring the gospel, we bring Americanism. We bring, of course, we love our English language. I love the English language. It's the only one I'm good at. You know, I said good at it. It's the only one I'm functional in. And so, of course, I love it. But we have a tendency to add these other things in that aren't the gospel. But let's talk about the gospel and contextualization. Don't know that word, contextualization? In some circles, this is a cuss word. In some circles, this is the buzzword for everything we do. we got to make the gospel contextualized in its setting. And con- that just means you take something, you mold it to fit the context that you were in. So is there any context in which you would contextualize the gospel? No. you got to know any contrary answers. So I would say that the gospel doesn't change. Okay, so for instance, a good example of that is if I go to Indonesia and preach the gospel, I better not do it in English. Yeah. And do it in whatever language the people speak. So that's a certain type of contextualization. I've got to make the lingo match, but I have to be careful when I change the lingo, what do I need to preserve? All the meaning, all the content needs to be exactly the same, even if the words are different. The meaning has to be exactly the same. The gospel is the same in all contexts. No matter what the context is, the gospel is the gospel. So with the Gentiles and with the Jews, there was no difference in the gospel message. Now, Paul would preach it differently. If you notice that in the book of Acts, it wasn't a different message. It was a different delivery, a different style even. When he preached to Gentiles, he quoted Gentile prophets. When he preached to the Jews, he quotes the Old Testament scriptures. It was just a formality. He, he was ultimately going to quote the scriptures either way. But he dealt with the context he was dealing with. But in both scenarios, Jesus dies on the cross for sins, raises from the dead to redeem us. See what I'm saying? So when we say contextualize, we can only mean it in certain ways. But here's another way that it's going to mean, and we need to talk about this one. So the culture of various people groups does mean that the gospel may apply in varying ways. So I'm going to give you an example of this. I want to be careful that you don't mis- misinterpret that. All right, so for the Jews, just for an example, repentance from nationalism and self-righteousness marked conversion. 
So think about the Apostle Paul. When he goes on his tirade about how, how good of a guy he used to be, do you remember any of his uh, descriptions of that? I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Pharisee of the Pharisees. Hebrew of the Hebrews. The tribe, tribe of Benjamin. One of the two. Self-righteousness and what? Self-righteousness and nationalism in their context. So Paul is almost the perfect example of what self-righteous Phariseeism looked like before Christ. And repentance to him was walking away from that. I count it all as loss, or skivala. I'll just go with the Greek. Yeah. <laughs> that's the proper English alternative. All right, for the Gentiles, it was repentance from idolatry and hedonism. It's repentance in both categories. It's repentance to Jesus. It's forgiveness by the blood of the cross. It's the resurrection. That content's the same. But the way the gospel affects you individually is unique to you and could also be tied to your cultural sins. Every culture has sins. Every So when you preach the gospel to a group of evangelicals, you might need to call out different sins than when you're preaching it to a group of California liberals. Right? They're both, everybody in that, that whole example, they're all sinners, but they have different sins. And the gospel... It's going to call out both. Whatever the situation is. Do you have a question? Alex? I did. I just like the hedonism. That's just like seeking worldly pleasure. Yes, yeah, the hedonism is just uh, self-indulgence. Whatever I want. So, so the, the Greeks definitely loved their... Well, they just loved loving. <laughs> Whatever. I, I, was, I almost put another word there. And I said, no. Hedonism is more broad and less... It's more kosher. You can read between the lines, right? The Greek culture... Okay, there you go. That's good enough. So, so largely their repentance is from this stuff. And some of those are sins Jews didn't struggle with. For the most part in the first century, Jews weren't bowing down to idols. It was kind of the opposite, wasn't it? Yeah, and they, they weren't doing the hedonism stuff either. They were self-righteous and nationalistic. That was their primary sin. Whereas the Gentiles are American. You know, sins of the flesh. Well, you know what I mean. All right, and then the last one. So this one's I've got to be careful how we talk about this, but it, it is it is true. So the fruit of a universal gospel should be radical diversity in the church. Think about that. The fruit of a universal gospel, so an unchanging gospel, should make a church diverse. Why? Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're all in the right direction here. So so the same message should should save every group. And so in the early church, Paul had a way he could have solved this Jew-Gentile controversy. He could have just said, hey guys, first Jewish church, first Gentile church. Get along. That's all he did. We got to do this together. Unity was a big deal for Paul. Not at the expense of the gospel. At the expense of most of my personal freedom, yes. Unity above all after the gospel. So a universal gospel message should produce diversity within a church. If the culture is diverse. And the culture is always diverse. But it should produce that. Okay. Any questions? This one was, I know, more history-based, more, more background stuff. Next week, though, it, it dives 
full along into the doctrine of soteriology, so that's going to get good. Uh, I mean, I like this topic too, but I really like this topic. Oh, under gospel and contextualization, what was the first one? The gospel is the same in all. Context. context. So it's not actually the gospel that changes. It's at best the delivery, but most directly, it's the application of how it impacts my life is what I repent of. That, does that make sense? You have to leave the idol you're serving. All right. Okay, any other questions? It's right at time. So uh, we'll pray. And uh, we'll be, then don't forget, don't, don't reset the room. Leave it as it is. So. Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. Pray you bless the time we spend together. Pray that our study of Galatians would prove fruitful in our lives as we think about Paul's ministry and how the gospel does not come with a list of laws that make us your children, but simply our faith in Christ redeems us because of his satisfactory work on the cross. So God, I pray that you bless us um, with faithfulness and fruitfulness as we respond to this gospel in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.